Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Akon Asara. I'm a rheumatology and GIM registrar working in the southeast. Thank you for joining us today, Akon. So I'm going to start with a case. Okay. Okay, so it's a 54-year-old female. Yeah. Now, I was on the ward round. It was a Saturday morning and I didn't actually see this patient. However, I could hear the patient. She was very, very, very irritable, very confused. She was quite aggressive, very, very loud on the ward. Okay. She'd been seen by a different doctor, so I didn't really get involved in the care until later on in the afternoon when the previous doctor wasn't available. I was around and they said, we really need some help. She was alone. I was told that she had no family and that she'd come from a care home. Now remember, she's only 54 years old. Hmm. It was clear that she was confused, she was disorientated and she looked very, very ill. Okay. She was hitting out, she was screaming and certainly when she was on the ward, I know that the nursing staff found it quite difficult to manage her aggression Mm. in a safe way and also thinking about the other patients on the ward. So before I went in to see her, I looked through the notes and I found out that she was a very frequent attender to our hospital and also to local hospitals within the area. It was known that she had a very high alcohol intake. Okay. Although of later months this had actually reduced and it was also known that she had liver cirrhosis and it was thought that she had alcoholic liver disease associated um, which had then led to liver cirrhosis. Okay. So I didn't really look too much more into the investigations at that point because I thought I'm going to have to go and see her. She sounds very unwell. The nurses are very, very worried. So I went to see the patient. I was unable to get very little history from her or how she got there because she was very confused and disorientated. Given that I was unable to take a history, I asked one of the doctors I was working with that day to contact the care home to try and find out a little bit more information. Okay. And they felt that she was very unwell and that they were unable to cope with her aggressiveness. Right. Therefore, they'd sent her into hospital. Also, I'd been told repeatedly that she had no family and no friends. And certainly, on looking through the notes, it didn't say that there was a next of kin telephone number. Okay. So that wasn't an option that we could go down. So the examination was very, very vital in this patient. And also to review a previous clinic letters and any notes that were available. Yeah. On examination, from the end of the bed, she looked very, very ill. Okay. She just looked horrendous you know and you sort of panic because you're thinking okay this patient is poorly her respiratory rate was between 24 and 26 per minute temperature was 35.6 her blood pressure was 90 over 74 heart rate was 120 beats per minute and a capillary refill was around three seconds she was jaundice she was obviously jaundice from the end of the bed she was very tremulous It was obvious that she was frail and had quite significant muscle wasting that was obvious in her arms and her legs and the areas that were visible. Her face was rather sunken in. Looking at her nails, she was quite unkempt and quite dirty. 
She had spider nevi. These were present on the upper arms going onto the anterior portion of her chest. Okay. But I couldn't identify any of the spider nevi anywhere else. Heart sounds were normal. Her chest revealed a few crepitations at both bases. Yeah. Her abdomen showed some ascites, but it was not tense. So there was certainly some fluid there. There was some obvious shifting dullness, but I was unable to palpate a liver or a spleen. She had pedal edema, probably up to about mid-shin. I tried to visualise the JVP, but I was unable to. And also looking around the bed and looking at the patient, I couldn't see any obvious blood loss. Okay. So, what are you worried about in this patient at this stage? So, for someone who's become irritable, confused and aggressive with a past medical history of excessive alcohol intake, she seems to have quite a few signs um, of decompensated liver disease. So, she's got spider nevi, she looks jaundiced, and then examining her, she has ascites, although not tense, she does have obvious shift in dullness, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned. So, all this suggests that she's, she's got a chronic disease of some sort and it would be reasonable to 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 say alcohol might be the underlying cause mm-hmm. excessive alcohol although there are others mm-hmm. um but my main concern at the moment is that she she has decompensated liver disease and is encephalopathic which is causing her to be confused and to be disoriented and aggressive okay excellent what other things would you look for on examination of this patient that may help tell you that this patient has decompensated liver disease. Okay, so you mentioned the um, the sort of invest- the initial investigations. Yeah. Um, but I guess looking more closely, when you're looking at the hands, you want to look for any signs of clubbing. When you look at um, her face, um, you mentioned spider nevi, you might notice flushing off her cheeks as well. Parotid gland swelling? Yeah, parotid gland, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess these, these all signify liver disease. Yeah, absolutely. You may see kaput medusa. You could see kaput medusa. I have to say, I've never seen one, okay. except for in the books. Um, yeah. But yeah, you could see kaput medusa. Okay. Um, kaput medusa would, is... Yeah, so dilated veins, essentially. So dilated ven- veins in the abdomen. Um, and I think it comes from that, what's her name? Medusa. Medusa, <laughs> Medusa with, with the hair yeah. all spidery sticking out. Hair. Spidery hair. And it would look similar to that in her abdomen. Other things that you could look for are signs of what the cause of the cirrhosis was. Yes. So, so I, I know we're assuming it's alcohol, but mm-hmm. we should never assume really. So it could be hepatitis B or C. Um, so looking at her skin, you might notice tattoos. Um, you might notice any signs of intravenous drug use. Um, and those might, might also help to with the diagnosis, with the underlying diagnosis. Yeah, excellent. That's a really good point. And also, if you do have a patient like this, you're not sure in the history, it's always really important to ask a sexual history. Yeah. To ask about blood transfusions and to try and identify exactly what the cause was. But yeah, I agree with you. We've got a patient in front of us. We know that she has liver cirrhosis. We know that she's previously been diagnosed with alcohol-related liver disease, but she presented very, very unwell. Yeah. And you mentioned decompensated cirrhosis. So I'm just going to go back a little bit to a bit of pathophysiology. Okay. So what actually is cirrhosis? So we know that Serhos is Greek for yellowish. Yeah. And osis is condition. 
So actually, it's Greek for yellowish condition, which I guess that's where the jaundice comes from as well. Yeah. We know that in cirrhosis, you've got huge amounts of scar tissue. And this scar tissue replaces the normal liver parenchyma. And because you've got scar tissue, the blood flow through the liver and the portal flow through the liver is blocked. And because of this, it raises your portal pressure. Yeah. Normal function of the liver is therefore affected and you get backflow and high pressure within the spleen. So the spleen becomes enlarged and you get a very enlarged spleen. Eventually, this fibrous tissue replaces all of the good liver function and all of the liver tissue. And you've got very poor liver architecture and the liver fails completely. And that's often what happens in decompensated liver disease. What actually does the liver do though? Why do we need it? So the liver's very, the liver's paramount to metabolizing mm-hmm. things. So metabolizing all the different food groups, I guess, medications. Okay, so the liver has many different roles. And the reason we're really concerned about liver damage is because if we don't have a functioning liver, we know that it can't synthesize proteins. It can't synthesize and store glycogen, amino acid metabolisms affected, clotting factor productions affected. So it produces fibrinogen, prothrombin, protein CNS, that's all going to be affected. Cholesterol synthesis. Oh yes, of course, cholesterol synthesis. Um, Vitamin A, D, E and K, the fat soluble vitamins aren't made. Triglyceride synthesis, produces and excretes bile. It has so many different roles. So if you don't have a functioning liver, that is affected and that has a huge impact and a knock-on effect on the body. Yeah. And we know that when you get the liver dysfunction in cirrhosis, you get portal hypertension which we've mentioned, you get backflow into the spleen, you get hypersplenism, and the spleen sequesters platelets. So you get a very low platelet count. And this backflow, this is what results in the caput medusa as well as the varices Excellent. as well. Yeah, absolutely. So your body tries to produce alternative routes for blood flow. And one of them is, as you say, esophageal varices. One is the caput medusa. Sometimes patients have rectal hemorrhoids. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen patients with rectal varices. Have you? Yeah, uh, it's terrible. Been bleeding, yeah. That it's... have bled, yeah, and and actually has caused their death. Yeah, they can be that severe. Yeah, variceal bleeds can be pretty horrible. Ascites, we've mentioned because obviously you've got changes in oncotic pressure, encephalopathy. You've mentioned it sounds like our patient is encephalopathic. Yeah. Thought that this may be due to excess ammonia. The liver's unable to excrete the ammonia. We know that encephalopathy, patients can be confused. Initially, they will have an altered sleep-wake cycle, lethargic personality changes. They may eventually develop coma. They have increased risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma, jaundice. So we know that when the liver is not working, we've got decreased hepatic excretion of conjugated bilirubin in the biliary tree, very jaundice, and pruritus. So often patients with liver disease will complain of itching because they can't, you've got very impaired bile secretion. Your bile sorts accumulate within the skin and that can cause quite significant itching. And that's why you see, you quite often see patients with scratch marks all over them who are jaundiced because they've been really itchy all night and have just scratched all their skin out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always a, a key thing to look for on examination are those scratch marks. Absolutely. Also, you mentioned they might be clubbed. Um, they may have leukonychia, so the white spots in the nails. We know that the liver also is involved in the fun- synthesis of albumin, 
So hypo, albuminemia causes the white spots and also Duperchance contracture. Ah, yes. I remember that as a medical student, yeah. always looking for Duperchance contracture. Yeah, absolutely. It was first described in 1834 in The Lancet by Mr. Dupertron. Hmm. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. And it's thickening of the palm fascia and you get nodules all within the palm, particularly in the tendons and basically your fingers are impaired. So that's also a key thing to look for. So that was just a bit of an aside. So aside from alcohol, what can else can cause cirrhosis? So there is non-fatty steatohepatitis or NASH that can result in cirrhosis. Which is now called non-alcohol related fatty liver disease or NAFLD. NAFLD. And then there are the viral hepatitis. Yes. So uh, hepatitis B and C in particular. Um, um, and then autoimmune hepatitis that can result in cirrhosis um, and often happens in younger patients mm-hmm. and hereditary hemochromatosis ah uh, yes wilson's disease alpha-1-trypsin deficiency and primary biliary cholangitis which used to be called primary biliary cirrhosis it's now changed its name yeah so these are all more rarer causes of cirrhosis so are these, these are things that you would look out for anyway, even if you do suspect the patient has high alcohol intake, you want to make sure the patient doesn't have any of the other contributing factors. Absolutely. Certainly on first presentation, just because the patient has a very high alcohol intake, we can't assume that this patient's liver disease is due to alcohol-related consumption. So absolutely, we need to find out how much alcohol they are drinking, but we also need to look for hep B and hep C infection. Are they obese? Do they have type 2 diabetes, which is all increasing the risk of non-alcohol fatty-related liver disease? So definitely, when a person initially presents with liver disease, don't assume it's alcohol and do a liver screen to try and identify the cause. So in our patient, we know she has a diagnosis of alcohol-related liver disease. She's in front of me. She's ill. What are you going to do as the registrar on call? I've gone off for a coffee. (laughs) Okay, so you want to do the ABCD resuscitation. Mm -hmm. So um, she looks very ill at the end of the bed. Mm -hmm. So you want to do the basic things just to stabilise her. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the fact that she's sort of crying out is almost a good sign because she's not reach the, the point of being unresponsive and in a coma. So um, making sure her airways patents, um, her breathing um, is okay at the moment, although she's a little tachypneic, but that might be because of her distress. Her blood pressure is a little bit low, but I wonder if it's usually low for her because she has alcohol, liver disease and cirrhosis. They often run a low blood pressure, but she is tachycardic. She has a heart rate of 120. So um, when you consider giving her fluids, you'll think, I guess, I always would think about the ascites, mm-hmm. but you don't want to um, not fluid resuscitate her with the fear of ascites because um, acute kidney injury is worse than ascites, essentially. So I'd give her some fluids. Mm-hmm. And just to bring in here, are you aware of the decompensated cirrhosis care bundle, which was released by the British Association for the Study of the Liver and the British Society of Gastroenterology? No, I'm not aware of the bundle, no. It's a fantastic two-page document that was released in 2014. Okay. And it's really, really helpful in identifying precipitating factors to the decompensation and also how you manage it as well. Yeah. So I was actually going to go to that 
adenosine precipitating causes because I noticed that this patient's got a temperature of 35.6 which is a little bit on the low side so you're a bit worried about her having an infection Um, so when I examine her I would also look for any signs of an infection so you mentioned she has bibasal crackles Um, so does she have a chest infection I'd want to do a chest x-ray she has some ascites so I'd want to tap that and check if there's any signs of an infection in that absolutely yeah. Um, and then the other usual thing, check, doing a blood test, mm-hmm. um, looking at her inflammatory markers, uh, looking at her albumin level, her clotting as well, just to, I guess, see what, what severity, what stage of severity she is in mm-hmm. the encephalopathy. Okay. And we know that the liver stores glycogen. So she, um, if her liver's not working, that she'll probably be hypoglycemic. That's so right. It's really important to check the blood glucose to ensure that hyperglycemia isn't driving this agitation and that she's not neuroglycopenic. Now, looking at the bundle, the bundle very clearly sets out seven sections and the first section is investigations. Full blood count, which you mentioned, use and ease, making sure she's not hyponatremic, which can also occur in alcohol liver disease. Liver function, make she did have a very high bilirubin. Her ALT and AST were elevated, as was her alkaline phosphatase. Coagulation, she had a very prolonged prothrombin time, so she was very prone to bleeding. Calcium levels were slightly on the lower side of normal. Phosphate and magnesium, important to check. Individuals with alcoholic liver disease or any form of liver disease can have a low magnesium level. Blood cultures? Yeah, blood cultures and urine. Absolutely. Chest x-ray you mentioned, scan of the, of the liver and yeah. of the abdomen. CRP, which you mentioned, you said acidic tap, absolutely. And also clearly try and identify how much alcohol intake it is. It's yeah. really important. You've got a patient in front of you who's agitated and you're concerned about decompensation. Mentioned encephalopathy, what drug must we give? Something that we give and it's a lovely orange colour. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so vitamins, thiamine yeah. um, or Pabrinex. Yeah, so we're going to get a pair of next. Yeah. yeah, vitamins B and C, two pairs, three times a day, and we're going to be doing a further podcast episode on looking more into encephalopathy and how oh, it's treated be useful. with Pabrinex. So infections you mentioned, absolutely. We know that if the neutrophils within the ascites are more than 0.25 times yeah. 10 to the nine, then you give antibiotics. Usually, what the trust suggests, and they also suggest human albumin. Yes. So in intravenous format, so that might be what you want to give instead of, say, 5% dextro glucose um, as fluids. Absolutely. So you give 20% human albumin solution and it's 1.5 grams per kilogram. Acute kidney injury, you need to make sure they don't have that, as you rightly suggested. Looking at their low sodium, make sure you stop the diuretics and nephrotoxic drugs if you've picked up on a and creatinine. Yeah. Fluid balance, again, you know, weight charts if you can. And then if the patient isn't getting any better when you've instigated all these, think about referral to intensive care. Now, in our patient, we also need to try and identify what else might have tipped her over the edge. We've mentioned infection. We've mentioned acute kidney injury. What else can trigger off decompensation? Yeah, because she, she, we assume she's been, she'd been okay in the care home mm-hmm. up until a point and then decompensated from there. I don't know if she had started drinking alcohol again. Unable to find that out. Okay, so that's one thing. Infection. GI bleed? 
GI bleed, yes. Yeah. So if she's if So she's that's both I guess a cause and a consequence of decompensation. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we do think she's had a GI bleed, then we resuscitate. You can give intravenous terlipressin, two milligrams four times a day. Again, prophylactic antibiotics as suggested by the Utrust protocol. If your prothrombin time is prolonged, you can give vitamin K. Yeah. Ten milligrams intravenously. If your prothrombin time's more than twenty seconds, you can give FFP or fresh frozen plasma and obviously replace the platelets if they're less than 50 with platelets and if it's a massive bleed you probably want to go to replace the blood okay we know that if they're also on warfarin or they've got prolonged INR because of warfarin usage octoplex and which is recombinant clotting factors two seven nine and ten and we can replace those and help stop the bleeding okay however in our patient it appears that this is probably infection driven. So, so there's no evidence of a GI bleed? No. no. And there's no evidence of any other drug use, so opiates. There's no evidence of dehydration or constipation. There's no evidence of um, GI bleeding, as we mentioned. So absolutely, we need to treat accordingly. However, she looks really, really sick. What sort of things are going through your head? About needing to call intensive care? Yeah. Yes, we're going to give broad spectrum antibiotics mm-hmm. and collect any electrolyte derangements. Um, but apart from identifying which imp- infection has caused it, you do actually want to think about referring to either the tertiary centre or mm-hmm. intensive care. So when I saw this patient, these things were going through my head. Now, when I looked at her blood tests, which showed a raised white cell count, very low platelet count of 24, white cell count of 24 as well. They're very, very similar. She had a neutrophilia. There was um, very abnormal liver function tests. She was very, very sick. I really needed to start thinking about how aggressive does my management need to be? Yeah. At what point do I need to say, what is in the patient's best interest? When is enough enough? I guess it's quite difficult with this patient, isn't it? Because she's got no family members, mm-hmm. she's got no friends, the care mm-hmm. home don't know much, too much about her. So the decision has to be very much the medical team mm-hmm. and, you know, probably involvement of the GP who might know some things about her, but really the medical team in hospital and intensive care. Yeah, it was it was very, very difficult. And you're right, she was encephalopathic. We know that um, lactulose is an option, but she was so agitated that actually giving her lactulose even via an NG tube would have been exceptionally difficult. Um, we can't always assume it's encephalopathy, so the guidelines also suggest doing a CT head okay. to ensure that we're ruling out subdural hemorrhage or something else that could be causing the confusion. Of course, because she's got a raised PT, maybe she's hit her head and, and had a bleed. Absolutely, so it's really key to do that as well. However, when I went to see the patient, I spent quite a bit of time with her. We had a plan, which was initially quite an aggressive plan, actually. So we followed the ABCDE approach. We did all of the things suggested by the decompensated liver care bundle. And then I'd gone off the ward and I had a bleep to say that the patient's family were here. Oh. And I said, but she doesn't have any family. Oh, but she did. She had a very angry family because they hadn't been contacted that the patient was in hospital. The care home hadn't informed them. We hadn't informed them that she was in hospital. And she had daughters, three daughters who were there, who understandably 
were very anxious to find out what was going on with their mom and very anxious to find out what we were going to do and what the prognosis was. It was initially quite a difficult consultation because I was quite unprepared because I'd been told there wasn't a family. Yeah, absolutely. It was very difficult. So I sat and I listened to their concerns and their complaints. And it was obvious in the conversation that they felt enough was enough. And that when the patient had capacity, which she certainly didn't now, she had expressed wishes that she wanted to die. There was no advance directive. There was no respect form in place. So I had to make a decision in the best interests of the patient, taking into account what the family had told me, getting specialist advice from hepatologists and the gastroenterology team within the hospital. And it was decided that we would try for 24 hours with the antibiotics, try and get some lactulose in, try and give some medication to try and calm her down, to try and make it a little bit more comfortable for her and then see where we went from there. Unfortunately, in spite of our best efforts, she did pass away two days later on the end-of-life pathway, which was appropriate at that time. Yeah, I mean, you get to a point where you do have to just make sure that she has uh, reasonable comfort levels um, instead of being aggressive with treatment. I know she's only 54, but for somebody who's so frail, like you described, and had been unwell for quite a while, with the family being on board, that's, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I would do too. And we do know that hospital mortality of decompensated liver disease is high. It's about 20%. And very frequent admissions, very, very, very poorly frail individual. At what point do you say, this is it actually? And the family had had enough. They said their mum had had enough. So it was decided that actually this is the kindest thing to do. It was very, very difficult, particularly because I'd only just met her. Yeah. So I'm making these very big decisions. It was very frustrating that I'd been told she had no family. Yeah. Probably more frustrating for them. Absolutely, yes. So that's another thing that I've learned is if you're told there's no family, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a family. Yeah. Eventually, when when she did pass away, she had a dignified, peaceful death. And she was calm and she was settled, which is really... What the most you can ask ask for, for. really. Absolutely. But I certainly learned a lot about how to manage decompensated liver disease, but also when to think, this is it actually. Enough is enough. Mm. I suppose the sooner you can identify that, the sooner you can stop prodding a patient who's already distressed um, because all the needle investigations are really going to be quite distressing to her, to them. Absolutely. So I just want to go over just a little bit about cirrhosis um, in the over-16s because the NICE guideline NG50, which was published in July 2016, looks at assessment and management. So just moving on and going back a little bit to you've got a patient who's got cirrhosis with you. They Obviously, in our patient, it was very different. We had a diagnosis, probably infection, we treated accordingly. But if you're not entirely sure... They do now suggest that you do transient allostography. Oh. So this was a new thing to me. I've heard about it. And it recommends that adults we know who do have cirrhosis undergo transient elastography. Um, and that's repeating annually. And it looks at 
um, basically how the fibrous tissue within the liver. So if they have a score of less than 6 kPa, they're unlikely to have fibrosis. Okay. If it's between 6 and 11, they're very likely to have cirrhosis. And you probably don't need a biopsy if you're thinking hepatitis or another right. cause like that. Um, if you're unsure, then you may have to go ahead and do a biopsy if you're thinking you want to figure out exactly what the diagnosis is. Okay. How is that different from a fibro scan? I've it's heard the same thing. Oh, it's the same thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I think fibro scan may be the... Um, they're, they're different. Just the a different, different name, name for, for it. it. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Different trusts will have different options. So another one is acoustic radiation force impulse imaging. Okay. Um, I guess it depends which is available within your actual trust. That's good for diagnosing cirrhosis and also non-alcohol fatty liver disease. So it's really important to look at that. There also have lots of scores that can be done to look at the severity of the cirrhosis. There's the MELD score which is the model for end-stage liver disease, which you can go away and read about. Yeah, that's quite a useful one. I've yeah. used that. Yeah, that's a good one. And also, obviously, anybody with chronic liver disease, you have to monitor for hepatocellular carcinoma. It's really useful. And also for detecting esophageal varices. So all really, really important things to say. So very how would you manage case. a patient? Yes, very. But how would you manage a patient who is known to have liver cirrhosis yeah. and are at home? What sort of advice would you give them to try to prevent decompensation? Sometimes so, it's inevitable, I guess. But So if it's alcohol related, you want to ensure that they are cutting down on their alcohol intake, completely stop it. Abstinence is always the best. They need to avoid infection. So we know that patients with cirrhosis do have a decompensated immune response as well. So try and avoid infection. You want to ensure good hydration so they don't develop acute kidney injury. You want to ensure their sodium levels remain normal. Avoid constipation. It's really important. Um, even though their low platelets are often low, they're often hypercoagulable. Right. So some patients, particularly when they're in hospital, obviously a platelet count of 24 in our patient is very low. But if it's above 50, you would give low molecular weight heparin. So if they're very high risk of this, consider you know, the use of um, prophylactic plexane, absolutely. Okay. Um, you want to avoid um, or manage the portal hypertension. So sometimes they may need um, medications such as aspironolactone to help with the ascites. So we're sort of trying to prevent those sort of things, absolutely. And they'll be well managed, obviously, by the gastroenterology team and also by their general practitioner as well. Alcohol liaison services as well is also often useful absolutely yeah um we will cover the liver screen in a future episode because obviously that is i think that's a podcast in itself it is i can imagine well there's a long list i remember being a gastro sho um, there's a long list of screening tests we needed to do so that'll that needs to be looked at in depth absolutely so we've got a couple of guidelines which you mentioned the cirrhosis guideline and we've also got the alcohol-related liver disease pathway, which NICE also published in 2017 as well, which is also very useful to look for. I think the key things from this case are really important to have a good, honest discussion with a family. Yeah. Um, and obviously how we can investigate and manage liver cirrhosis and what we look for in a patient and also recapping the liver care bundle that we did. So Great. Any- thank you for that. Thank you very much for your time and thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet at rcplondon or at Amy Burbridge. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.